Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. I want to welcome everybody to the first official episode of Upthinking Finance. My name is Emerson Fersh. I want to share a quote with you that is from one of my personal heroes. His name is Robert Francis Kennedy. And he once said, fear not the path of truth for the lack of people walking on it. That's an approach that served me well in life. And I think a quote that really embodies the journey of today's guest, Alex Craner. Alex is the founder of Craner Analytics and the creator of iSystem Trend Following. He's worked since 1996 as a hedge fund manager, a market analyst, and a futures trader. And he's written a number of books, um, one of which has been rated in 2021 and 2022 as the number one book on commodities trading by a UK financial website called The Financial Expert. He publishes the Daily Trend Compass Report, which provides not only market commentary, but also updated trading positions for a number of global market indexes. And I can say that for me, it has become the number one resource that I personally rely on to advise my clients and manage their money. Alex is a contributing editor on a U.S.-based financial journalism website called Zero Hedge, which is how he and I became acquainted. And most importantly, he's the father of two. It's my pleasure to introduce and welcome my friend who's coming to us live from the beautiful Principality of Monaco, Alex Craner. Hi, Emerson. Good to join you. Thank you for having me and uh, warm greetings from Monaco to all your listeners. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking if you would be willing to go ahead and explain a little bit about what trend following is and then how you came to embrace it as a viable investment strategy and create a model around it and then maybe just share any challenges and difficulties that you've experienced along the way. My path with trend following goes back to about 1997. At that time, I was working at an oil trading company. It was a Monaco-based subsidiary of a larger Swiss-based commodities trading company. And uh, basically, I started as a trading assistant, but uh, then I moved to a market analyst. And at that point, you know, the company management asked me to try to develop some kind of a more systematic way to managing market risk because we had, you know, we would simply buy cargoes of oil or oil derivatives, physical cargoes floating on the sea in tankers, and then we would sell them at a later time. And so while the cargo was in our possession at, on our risk, if prices moved against us, it could be a losing transactions. If they went in our favor, it would be a profitable transaction. But basically, the management wanted to be less at the whim of the markets and to have a more reliable way of managing that risk. And so that's where I started from, and I had absolutely no idea about how to resolve that problem because the main problem there is uncertainty, not risk so much, simply that you, you didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen in a week or a month from today. After I made some inroads by myself, I persuaded the company to give me a budget to hire a small team of uh, mathematicians and software programmers. But we started essentially from a blank sheet of paper. Our thinking over about two years of research kind of converged on trend following, even though none of us knew anything about it. 
But basically, the way this happened is so I'm talking about uh, between 1997 and 2000. And as you'll recall, that was the time of the dot com boom. And it was also the time during which oil prices uh, practically halved from a low 20s per barrel to at one point hitting less than $10 a barrel. Both these events manifested very large trends. And you know, we worked at a trading company where, you know, we were sur surrounded by traders. We were listening, you know, we were doing market analysis. We were listening to all these traders talk, uh, to their brokers, to the bankers and so forth. And I can tell you that on both counts, on the oil prices and on the dot-com boom, we all were wrong. And we were all wrong because we pursued this um, fundamentals analysis that, you know, you get if you read Economists let's say, conventional market analysts, you know, who look at uh, supply and demand conditions in the markets and then they say like, ah, you know, supply is going up, demand's going up, prices are going to go up or down like that. And so in the 1990s, during the dot-com boom, American economy and European economies were growing quite strongly. Capital was flowing into tech stocks, into the pharmaceuticals, into uh, communications uh, investments and so forth. But the investment in oil production and refining and extraction had become constrained. And so we thought, okay, so economy is growing, demand is going up, but obviously because of underinvestment, the supply is going to be come short of reaching those demand levels. And so the price can do nothing but go up. That was almost obvious. Everybody in the industry was talking in those terms. And what happened instead is that the oil price over the two years between, 90, let's say, 96 and uh, 98, they halved. They went from uh, mid to low 20s to below $10 a barrel. And so, you know, it's not, it's not very fun to be a trader when you're wrong for two years and catastrophically wrong. And the same thing with the dot-com stock market boom, you know, because already, uh, I don't know if you'll remember, but it was in 1996 that uh, Alan Greenspan gave his famous uh, Senate testimony during which he berated the markets for the irrational exuberance. And well, from the time that he made that call until the peak of the dot-com bubble, the markets tripled. And in the last five months of that bubble, uh, the Nasdaq, gained fully 110%. And so, you know, for, for us young uh, researchers at this company, we thought like, obviously markets are moving in trends. Why don't we try, instead of pursuing this fundamentals analysis, the econometrics, and being constantly wrong, why don't we try to figure out what these trends are and how we can best, let's say, extract value from them? Because they gave you these huge possibilities of windfall if you were on the right side and if you stayed with it, regardless of what you think about market prices, about this or that company's management, uh, their prospects, their profit statements and so forth. And so that's where our thinking simply converged on this idea of trend following without us really knowing that actually there was a whole set of hedge funds that actually actively pursued these strategies and as we later found out they were very very successful with it so from that point on we basically took up the challenge of creating a trend following model 
but we didn't do it in the in the way that most practitioners do this again because we didn't really know how this is done but what we did is uh, I basically you know looked at price charts of securities going up and down and I thought okay so if I can arrive at a judgment that this thing is an up what I'm seeing here is an uptrend and what I'm seeing there is a downtrend then it must be that in my brain there's some kind of a trigonometry some kind of math going on that arrives on that judgment for me and so I said hey guys you know why don't we why don't we try to reverse engineer this try to figure out how we arrive at those judgments and then build algorithms that could emulate human judgment in a numerical form and then use that to try to follow these trends and capture these windfalls and so that's what we did and we built a prototype of this model that we named the i system in 1999 by the time we had built it because of the way we did it it turned out very very complex and we realized we had a maintenance problem because you know for people who don't have experience in software engineering it's a it's a very very delicate business and usually you know for people who are not well qualified software engineers the maintenance becomes a real problem you know every time you find uh, something that you want to change or an error that you want to correct it tends to generate 10 new errors so we were we found ourselves that we were constantly in the maintenance mode we were always looking for error trying to weed them out and uh, then in 2000 i i recruited uh, a professional software engineer and over the next four years next three years we we worked on creating let's call it the industrial strength uh, version of that model and that's what i've been using for the last uh, almost 20 years and it's been functioning uh, practically without a glitch no actually entirely without a glitch for uh, 19 years now that's what generates the signals that you you've been receiving over the last year Here's a question. I know from my experience since we met, you know, I began receiving the Trend Compass report and finding ways to properly implement the, the data, you know, given the, the limitations of the platform I'm on. You first started sharing this with me. It felt right. It was contrary to everything I've ever learned in this industry from the beginning, which is 30 plus years now. But it felt right. And, and I know we have in our, in our churches a scripture that says, you will receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. So I went with it because, like I said, it just felt right. And you and I met in some interesting circumstances, which we'll talk about a little bit. But it wasn't until maybe three or four months ago after getting these reports every day and kind of seeing how trends start and stop and, and, and how this thing worked to where intellectually I went from this sounds like, a you know, feels like the right thing to I get it. This thing works. Did you kind of have that sort of process as you went along over these years building this? Well, yeah, because, you know, I think it took a good part of those first two years of our, uh, let's call it research and development work for this to click. You know, like for you, it clicked a few months ago. Same for me, this constant pondering of like, how do these markets work? What is the, what, what is the meaning of this risk and uncertainty? And how do we, you know, like, how do you create a way of, uh, let's call it, having an advantage but on a sustainable basis you know not because you got lucky on a trade on a, or or on a few trades but something that 
continues generating value reliably for conceptually unlimited amount of time for let's say forever and so the first click was that we thought okay why don't we try this trend following this is what seems to make sense and it took us a while to get to that conclusion and then the second click I had was uh, it was a bit of an inspiration and I explained this in my book basically at one point during this uh, research and development project I was uh, I was watching a wildlife program in which it was you know it was about these uh, these lions hunting zebras and and antelope in the in the African savannas and then it struck me that what these predators in nature are doing is actually not dissimilar to what we do in investment speculation right basically every attempted uh, hunt is an expenditure of resources there's risk in every you know because the animal has to run so it's going to expend energy it's going to potentially sustain an injury it's going to tire itself out right and so the instinct the decision making process that is managing these this this hunting behavior has to be profitable because the fact that this species even exists is proof positive that this system is profitable right because the lion not only has to sustain itself it also has to raise several liters of cub for the species to continue so the fact that they exist means that the way they obtain their sustenance and it's all hunting they don't farm right has to be profitable and so then i i kind of got into that into analyzing what this means and i realized that actually what predators do is they pass most of their time watching the potential prey same as we you know like as as traders or investors are watching the markets for investments that justify the risk and then you know at a certain moment when they decide that okay this is an opportunity then they go right same as same with us when we determine that some investment is a good investment then we execute the transaction and from that point on the profit and loss meter starts running but then the next stage is that in the animal there has to be a risk management process also because you know you can't run yourself to death because you have to catch this prey there's no ego like the second uh, that he or she determines that they're unlikely to make a kill this time they have to give up to preserve energy you know then this as as traders as as investors we also have to do we have to cut our losses right if if it turns out that we made a wrong transaction if you follow nature's logic and nature's model then that would probably be a way to design a, a system of managing investments that could potentially be infinitely sustainable and infinitely generate profits from investing so that's kind of the thinking that informed the the creation of i system so we didn't create it as a model to trade oil or a model to trade currencies or stocks we created it as a knowledge framework that has a number of parameters in it but these parameters are completely agnostic with respect to parameters so just to give you an example one of the algorithms a simple thing is a moving average right so you can do a 
if you follow financial press, they always talk about 200-day moving, moving average. And I always thought, like, who came up with that number? Why? Why 200? Why not 195 or 230? Why don't we leave that open? And then every time we want to learn how to trade a market, we can just try all the moving averages, you know, from, from like five days to 300 days and see which one works best. Basically, the iSystem is like a knowledge system that then every time we uh, tackle any single market, we do this guided machine learning that over many, many, many iterations learns how to trade some particular market. And so that's what we built. That's what you get now. And so far, you know, it's been 20 years. The, the system has redeemed itself. But I think that we are still, you know what they say, it takes 20 years to turn a project into an overnight success. <laughs> you know, I like what you said about asking why. Have you ever heard of the four agreements? No, I have not. What is that? It's a book that talks about sort of ancient Toltec philosophy. My son and I were driving and we had a long drive. And so we were listening to this. I think we were actually traveling from California back here to Utah. And we were listening to this and there was this statement in the beginning that talks about how we're born into this world thinking we have choice. But the reality is, is all the choices have been already laid out for us. We think we're choosing, but we're choosing from a predefined menu, so to speak. And that's how this business is, this financial planning investment business is, is that we're given these options as if that's what you choose from. And what this has represented to me is something that just is off the menu, that's different, you know, and that's what the appeal has been because as time has gone on for me in this line of work, I've been less and less enamored with the, the so-called experts. Um, and that would be a question I'd you know, ask you is how well has this been embraced, you know, in your experience with it? Not very well at all, because, you know, like as uh, I have also become less and less enamored by expert, because what I, you know, what I learned through my experience in the financial industry is that it is one impenetrable echo chamber of groupthink. And if you bring forth something that is different to the groupthink, for most people, it doesn't even compute. They may listen to you, but even if they understand the logic, they don't quite get it. As you said, from your point of view, to you it merely felt right at the outset. And then it took you a while to kind of digest it fully and to see how it works. I, I really commend you for that because most people, most professionals, if they cannot understand it because it's different from what they're used to, what they're fluent in, they reject it straight away. There's a niche of Mohicans, which, you know, are called the CTAs, the Commodities Trading Advisors, who, like us, tend to always use systematic trend following strategies because they all adopted this as their creed, as, as the way they navigate markets through uncertainty. Because one thing that you learn very quickly in the markets is that you really cannot predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone a year, two, or five years from now. So how do you position your risk? How do you, you know, decide where to invest, where to disinvest? So if you look at the price charts long enough, you realize that the big moves always unfold as trends. 
the best and the most reliable way of uh, uh, taking advantage of those trends is by trend following. That has several advantages. First of all, it absolves you of the obligation to be right. You make a transaction, if it turns out to be wrong, the system's gonna stop you out, it's gonna reverse you, you're gonna go in the other direction. You don't have to have an opinion about the matter. The second advantage is that once you learn how to navigate these uh, price trends, which are, which are basically curves on a chart, then it doesn't matter what you're trading. It can be, you know, it can be oil, it can be gold, it can be stock markets, it can be currencies. So you suddenly become a lot more versatile as a professional. It also makes it easy to change your mind. It's less stressful. And let's say that in contrast to people who are maybe long only in stocks because they're convinced that stocks are, you know, forever going to go up, if you're a trend follower, there's going to be a time when your uh, strategy is going to tell you, okay, reverse and go short. Because bear markets do happen. They happen for real and people get hurt. And the last time we had a bear market, that was in 2008. I used my, my strategies and uh, in 2008, I made 27% after fees. So it can be good for investors even if the markets turn negative even if we go into a bear market because you can always take a short position and profit from the market decline and that's the flexibility that hasn't existed for me as an advisor up until you know basically a year ago when you and i met the approach has always been either using insurance products that offered floors or buffers to the downside risk or in of course capping the upside going the other direction which locks the client in for six years or just your traditional you know buy and hold and you know ride it out which has worked i like the idea of adding in another component to me the broader your your options are from my side of the desk the better i'm going to serve the client and that's really the ultimate bottom line for all this sitting through the markets on the long side has worked because that's been one massive trend that we've seen from 2009 until well pretty much still today you know it's just been the the longest bear market on record so it has worked but it was a trend every bull market eventually ends so this one will as well so you remind me that from the peak of the the nasdaq in um what was march of 2000 there was what about a 15 year if somebody had 100% of their funds allocated to the Nasdaq it was what you know peaked at i think 5000 back in march of 2000 and it took what 15 years i think before it finally got back i mean that's 15 years of dead money 15 years of of lost purchasing power waiting for a which i guess you you know you'd say was a trend itself the trend was going the other direction for you know effectively that long or at least Direction less, maybe. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, yeah, people have to take that into account as well, because when you get a real bear market, it takes a very, very long time to recover. You know, we had, uh, you know, what happened in 1929, you know, uh, the S&P 500 dropped by, I think, something like 86%. And it took 25 years for it to recover. Another big bull market in the in the recent memory was uh, was the Japan's uh, bubble in the 1980s, and when that collapsed, uh, the Nikkei 
uh, went down 82% and it still hasn't recovered. It's been more than, it's been what, 30, 33 years, 32, 32 years. It's still never recovered. It's still about 40% below that peak. So being long stocks is good while the trend is up. But when you get into a downtrend, into a bear market, it's better to be short because then you can profit from that side as well. There's kind of a joke here in the U.S. because mutual fund investments have to show a 10-year history. And there was sort of a, once the 2008 fell off, you know, it's kind of like with it goes the memory of the other side of how this stuff works. So everybody looks like a genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one thing I've learned since you and I have become acquainted and been and working together is, you know, you're pretty visible. You know, you obviously have an expertise in, in this work that you do, but you're also, I, I guess, a historian, if that's a fair way to put it. I know you've, you know, you've had interviews, um, you've done lectures at universities that are online. And then you've been on Geopolitics and Empire a few times that I've listened. You also have a YouTube channel called Markets, Trends, and Profits. And you've a number of times referred on there to sort of a four-pillar strategy for long-term investment success. And it includes strategy, discipline, and patience. And in my time in this business, I've met hundreds, if not thousands, of, of product wholesalers forecasters, economists, portfolio managers, and they all talk about having a strategy. They all talk about disciplined investing, and they all really talk about patience. But I've never heard anybody include the fourth one that you include, which is truth. And I think that really gives the listeners a real broader idea of the kind of person you are. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on where that fits in to this pillars. Yeah. So basically, the four pillars to me go in this sequence. Truth, strategy, discipline, patience. So truth comes first. And what I mean by truth is kind of uh, first and foremost, you have to understand how the system works, human society, human psychology, and then, you know, the economy and the markets that stem from that, because ultimately the markets are nothing other than human beings transacting for their sustenance, for whatever their needs are, and for, you know, investing their savings in what they think will bring them returns so they don't, they don't lose purchasing power. So understanding how the system works has to be as clear as possible today. If you read financial press, if you need read any kind of press, television, these experts that we already mentioned, very often you'll find that the, uh, the information you get is uh, often, you know, it, it can be biased, it can be um, erroneous, sometimes it's outright false. And so, you know, rather than looking to experts for answers, rather than looking to authority for answers, you have to kind of discern the truth yourself. You have to apply yourself to learning and to gradually over time kind of constructing your own mental map of what the system is and how it functions. And from there stems strategy, because once you understand how the system works, which is, you know, a lifetime's pursuit, you know, uh, I understand it today better than I understood it 10 or 20 years ago, but I don't understand it entirely. And I hope that in 10 or 20 years from now, I'll be understanding it even better. So let's say, truth as pursuit of knowledge. Uh, 
But then also truth as in keeping healthy, constructive, respectful relations between ourselves as human participants in these markets. Because again, you know, economy, the markets, the investments, it's all human beings uh, transacting with one another. And uh, I think that if you're honest, if you're truthful, then people can rely on you. People can take your word for things. And then again, you know, going back to my, you know, like I always use the maritime analogy, uh, metaphor for, for risk is if, let's say, if I'm your investment manager, you can think of me as the captain of the boat where you're going to embark and put your valuables on, you know, your cargo and yourself and your family. And uh, for sure, as we go towards your destination, we're going to be sailing through some storms. And it might be unpleasant and it might, you know, you might not enjoy the uncertainty, but if you have trust in the captain and his ability to get you through the rough patch, then you're going to be able to do that and you're not going to stress out too much and you're not going to be too worried about the future. But that captain needs to earn that trust. And I think that the only way to earn people tr people's trust and to keep it is to be straight with them and truthful and honest. And then that relationship can be built and it can be a long-term relationship, which I think is what we all want ultimately because I think that the take the money and run business doesn't really work. No, and that's been my experience is at some point, like you say, when the storm comes, if those relationships aren't built on a on a really strong foundation of mutual trust and respect, it's going to be very easy for people to go haywire because, you know, you can have all the greatest plans in the world, you know, laid out. But once that, you know, the, the Shears and Lehman's and the Bear Stearns start going bankrupt and the news is, of course, the news in, in situations like that, if you don't really have a, a good connection like you're talking about, um, that's when people make mistakes. And that kind of leads me to the other part of what I wanted to talk about. Because you know, I mentioned in the beginning, I met, you know, we became acquainted actually through an article you wrote on Zero Hedge. The interesting part of it is it had nothing to do with finances. And, you know, it was entitled, um, Is the Age of Permanent War Finally Over? And in fact, I remember because it led me to your personal blog, The Naked Hedgie, there was a picture, if I'm remembering right, of a big boulder that had been sort of split in two by this tree coming up in the middle. And it was, you know, just symbolic of, of hope, particularly in a really just, you know, that was April of, of last year. So April of 2021, when a lot of misinformation, a lot of chaos, a lot of just not knowing what to believe and what was going to happen. And then you wrote this article, which, you know, I, like I mentioned, I mean, I've interacted with a lot of financial people over the years and never had anybody really talk about anything beyond just finances. I mean, even the, the product wholesalers I meet with, generally the we may talk about family, but it doesn't get very personal beyond that. It generally comes down to how many assets do you have under management? You know, how often should I contact you and what kind of products do you are you interested in? Which, you know, to me is is kind of creates a sterility of it. And, you know, and, I, and so that's what led me to you because of the fact you're personal. In fact, you shared another article I want to just reference real quick called America. And this was you were pondering the word America without the A and there was some historical significance. And it was just something you were kind of, I think you said noodling in your mind was the word you used. And then a day or two later, one of, you know, one of your sons asked you, what does America mean? 
and they would have had no way to know this from you. It wasn't like you had notes written down or had talked to them about it. And so the point of it was this connection, as you mentioned before, that we have as human beings. And like I said, in my experience is that I have, believe I have that with my clients, but I think that really gets lost beyond that relationship. And I think it's what is lacking. And, and so I wanted to just quote you from that article because you said, it's evidence that we are bonded in ways we can't easily understand and which operate outside our conscious will. The importance of this is hard to fathom, but it can't be a random fluke. More likely, it is central to our evolution into humanity's transcendence from our current state. I can tell you, Alex, financial people don't talk like this. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess my question is, how do you take this? Because no, I mean, really, there's a spiritual element that you bring that I connected to in the beginning that's unique. It actually does because of the fact you're a genuine person and, and you know, you're not afraid to be out there with who you are, it engenders trust. And that's part of the reason why I was willing to, to kind of allow myself to venture into the this different way of looking at investing and in, in, in helping my clients. So how do you bring all that together and kind of a, tie it together for me in a nice little bow? <laughs> you know, trend modeling, trend investing, and, and the spiritual side. You know, like I'm not a religious person in a conventional way. You know, I'm not, I'm, I was born a Catholic, but I, you know, I don't go to church and I, I kind of lost my bond to the institutional side of it but you know over the years i came to the point where you know if somebody asked me do you believe in god my answer is no yes my answer is no i don't believe i know mm -hmm. and how did that happen i don't really know how that happened exactly but i'm i'm there genuinely and so i hold this view that humanity is something sacred and that we have been made in the in god's image and so, you know, there's more to life than investing assets, right? That's, that's just one of the things that we have to do because we were all born into this fallen system. I didn't invent it. You didn't invent it. Nobody, none of your clients invented it. Basically, you know, everybody understands that you, you earn your money, you make some savings over your lifetime. But you understand that if you don't invest these savings to generate some return, that their purchasing power is going to gradually erode over time and they're going to be worth less and less and less each and every year. So the purpose of life is something else. The need to manage investments, to manage uh, people's savings and assets is, let's call it a necessary evil that at the moment we have to deal with. You know, if people, you know, worked and received their pieces of gold and silver and were able to keep that as their, you know, savings for the rainy day and for the retirement, then you wouldn't need to maybe even speculate at all. But, you know, since we didn't invent how things are, we have to kind of cope with what's there. And so, you know, my challenge in life has been to try to design the best possible way of dealing with risk and uncertainty on a sustainable basis. But at the same time, you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to lose sight of the absolutely magical fact that we are here and that there must be a reason for that. I find great joy in, in connecting with people. I love humanity. I love people. I think that there's something really, really special to us being here. But I think that we have to uncover it ourselves, you know, not just go through life looking 
exactly one step in front of ourselves and ignoring the the magic of life that surrounds us virtually everywhere you have to protect your assets you have to ensure your financial health but i think that you also want to invest some thought and effort into making your life the best experience it can be and also hopefully to leave the world as a better place for the next generation and all the generations afterwards. I will say when I first reached out, I mean, you know, I know you work with some big money management firms across the world. And, you know, I was just this little guy reaching out. I felt like, you know, uh, relatively speaking to, to try to learn more. And, and, you you know, just, you know, you treated me as an equal and with respect. And I just appreciated that because I can tell you again, that isn't always the case. Um, <laughs> you know, you cross paths with some people, they think you're doing you a favor, you know, coming into your office. So let's kind of close with this. You and I are sitting down. I finally make it out to Monaco at some point in 20 years. <laughs> We're 80 years old. When you look back, what specifically do you hope to accomplish with this, this trend investing? If you had your druthers, what would you like to be able to say how this made a difference? That's a good one. As a smaller objective, I would like to think that it has helped to secure people's financial health, but specifically, I would say the more ordinary people, because you know, like I spent 15 years in hedge fund management and there's a there's a hollow aspect to hedge fund management that you kind of, it dawns on you and then you can't shake it off. And the, that, that fact is that, you know, hedge funds are accessible to wealthy people. So basically you're expending your life's energy serving people who are already wealthy because they want to become even wealthier. While at the same time, you don't really have a way of serving the more ordinary people, the people that you grew up with, you know? And, uh, you know, I tried several times in the past few years to create a fund that would be accessible to people in small denominations, but I, I wasn't able to do it, you know? There's simply, there's all these regulatory compliance obstacles or it costs an, an exorbitant amount of money or you have to find a seed investor that going seed investor that is going to give you a hundred million dollars on day one and so I, I basically I had to for the time being at least give up on that idea but basically you know what happened when you called me up then you explained to me what you were doing I thought like well that's interesting because that's kind of the direction of solutions that I actually want to be able to provide. So how great that we that we met and that you were able to uh, create this solution for your investors. So 20 years from now, it would be great to think that we helped some people come out intact through the really, really turbulent and uncertain times that are ahead of us, you know, that might include high inflation, that might include a bubble collapse, a bear market and so forth. But I think, <laughs> and I don't want to sound like a revolutionary here because I'm, I'm not a communist or anything like that, but I think that if in 20 years from now we can say that we took this system down, that might be a satisfying feeling because I think that at the foundation of the system, of the economic system we have today, is a fraudulent monetary uh, arrangement, fraudulent monetary system. And that's exactly why people are constantly losing the purchasing power of their savings. You know, they spend their whole life 
working, creating something, putting away money for the retirement and for the rainy day and for their children's education and so forth. But they're being constantly robbed through inflation because somebody has obtained monopolistic legal right to conjure up currency out of thin air. And so they, they give themselves that purchasing power, which actually comes at the expense of your savings, of your wealth. It doesn't have to be this way. And, you know, even though if you go to school, they tell you, oh, this is the best system we ever had. This is the only system. Don't even think outside of this box. But we know that, you know, there has been many great civilizations that didn't use money, like Egypt. They built the pyramids. We know, so we know that they were a very, very advanced civilization. For about 800 years, there was a Muslim uh, kingdom of Cordoba in uh, covering most of the territory of today's, today's Spain. And it was far and away the most prosperous region of Europe for those 800 years. You know, it had large libraries, it had a stone paved street, it had hundreds of baths in, you know, in the, in the cities like Sevilla and Cordoba, lit up streets at night, uh, security, safety, and so forth. We, we don't know very much about this, and nobody's teaching us about this, but they didn't use fractional reserve system and fiat currency. They used gold and silver pieces, and they were prosperous and advanced, and life was good. So I think that it would be good if we rethought and reimagined the economic system, the monetary system, how we exchange the things we produce for things we uh, require. And I think that the result with this would be like humanity taking a giant leech off of its, uh, off of its blood supply and for the first time in maybe three or four hundred years breathe air with full lungs and uh, and live life with full energy and joy and um, in prosperity and security rather than you know constant anxiety constant um, insecurity and so forth so i think to wrap it all up a better system a system that's more conducive to a high quality of life for everyone no, that's great. And um, you're a hard guy not to like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very kind. Most of the people I talk to in this business, you know, they're, they're kind of content to, you know, what they're having their record years and revenues and all this. And it, but it, there's just a bigger point to it. And, and I want to share with you a couple of things. Um, you know, as I've begun introducing this, this trend model and trend investing idea to clients, the overwhelming response has been people appreciate the fact I'm looking at things outside of the traditional, you know, options to try to help people. So there's a gratitude for that. I've had, you know, one lady tell me she thought I was very courageous, you know, as I would say that really is, is a quality you have going against the traditional thinking. Um, because obviously, like you said, you know, Russell Napier, you introduced me to him um, as, a, as somebody to follow. And he calls it the crowd. You know, I'm reading a book he wrote and he calls it the crowd. But it's this, this idea that everybody gets kind of comfortable thinking the same way. But the best one is is a client I had a, a meeting with on the Zoom call just a couple of weeks ago. And I was explaining the model, explaining how it was working. And I was pretty excited about it because I get pretty passionate about things I, I really, you know, I believe in. And they kind of said, OK, you know, we get it. <laughs> they didn't want to hear anymore. But they had this look, you know, they're sitting there, you know, the husband and his wife, arm around his wife, and they're just sitting there, this, this couple, you know, that you're talking about that wouldn't have the ability to access this kind of uh, money management ordinarily. And 
they just had a look of peace on their face, given all the chaos around them. You know, it's it's this just there was a sense of peace. And they, you know, both gave me a virtual hug around the camera and wife gave me a virtual kiss. And I thought, you know, that's what this is all about. At the end of the day, you know, it's really just um, helping people. So I just want to let you know, Alex, I, I'm really grateful that we've, you know, I came fat we our paths crossed. I'm grateful for what you've brought to me to make me certainly a better advisor certainly more i feel much more equipped to go forward with whatever the uncertainty is which there i guess there're always uncertainty but particularly now and i'm just you know appreciate the the relationship it's it's just been enjoyable on a lot of fronts and so any final thoughts before i let you uh get back to your evening advise your viewers and listeners to be more open-minded to let's call it unorthodox approaches to uh, navigating the uncertain times that are ahead of us but also to to keep peaceful and to and to enjoy life because in the end you know like uh, when you strip down everything all we have is each other you know so i think the human relationships should always take precedence and uh, that is something to cultivate that is not something to take for granted it's something that perhaps like an orchard you know the more you give it the more you get from it then you have professionals like you that take care of certain specialist services that they maybe couldn't or wouldn't know how to do themselves same as i wouldn't know how to fix my own car myself but you know it's the ultimately investment management the the ultimate goal is to enhance your wealth or you know preserve it so that it serves your quality of life and ultimately give you a greater degree of personal liberty so that would be you know my final thought alex i appreciate you thanks so much for joining me thanks so much for your time thank you very much emerson it's been a privilege emerson fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through lpl financial Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.